I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day folks, Wayne Rubin here, and welcome to this first new episode of a whole new season of Hard Yards in Leadership. Now, I have to tell you, I'm so excited about the lineup of fantastic guests we have coming to you in the coming weeks. We've got people from leaders in the world of business, leaders of not-for-profit organizations. We've got people from elite sport. We've got leaders in the world of science and a whole lot more. And they've all given up their time to share their hard yards some of those specifically in leadership and sometimes just in their overall journey. And they do that because we, we all recognize that the opportunity to hear other people who we see as being successful, sharing some of the tough yards along the way, helps us as we deal with our hard yards on our journey. Today, I have an exceptional guest to share with you. Her name is Annabelle Chauncey. She's a young Australian woman who now carries an Order of Australia medal. In the story that she'll be sharing, she takes us back to when as a a university student, she went off to Kenya to, to go and teach English, discover the world a little bit, suddenly found herself in Uganda. There was an uprising and she looked around and saw a massive problem in terms of the availability of education for young kids in Uganda. And like so many of us, she had an idea and said, I'm gonna do something about it. And unlike 99% of the rest of us, she then essentially devoted her life to making that idea come true. So the episode you're gonna hear, she shares a lot of her story. We spend a lot more time delving into her story before necessarily talking about hard yards in leadership per se. And you're gonna find that story absolutely amazing and, and, and I'm sure you'll find it completely inspiring. She talks about so many hurdles that, that they faced um, between getting workers to actually work, getting politicians to support the project and, and not have to give bribes left, right and centre to deal with parents and let them see the value of what they were bringing and more and more. Along the way, she also talks about the inevitable imposter syndrome that she had to overcome as someone who had really none of the credentials to be able to do what she took on, but still found a way of making it happen, being in front of government, being in front of businesses, raising money, making things happen, literally making the extraordinary happen. More recently, she'll share about uh, the challenge she had of being a mum a new a leader and continuing to drive the, this exceptional charity that she's created, School for Life. So enough preamble now, let's get into it and welcome, a huge welcome, Annabelle. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's fantastic to be here. So Annabelle, you've got some, some amazing stories that I'm sure you're going to share and I'm not going to preview them yet for the listeners, but I think uh, listeners out there, you're in for an amazing ride in, in listening to Annabelle and her story. Regular listeners know that the first question I always, always love to get into is asking about your first leadership experience. When was the first time that someone said, okay, you're, you're in a leadership role? What was happening there? Yeah. It would have probably been at primary school. I was the captain of the school in year four 
which sounds like a great achievement, but uh, I had 26 kids in my whole school at primary school, so there probably just weren't any year five and six kids to vote in. But, yeah, it was a really small school, but it was the first time, I guess, that I, I led anything and was very proud of that achievement. So, yeah, definitely started early. <laughs> well, sometimes I ask whether you had a mentor, but I won't I won't go back all the way to year four. <laughs> and I've got to ask this question because otherwise listeners will, will harass me. What part of the world did you grow up in that you had such a tiny school? Yeah, look, I grew up in the southern highlands of New South Wales in just a rural locality called Canyon Lee. I uh, grew up on a 1,700-acre sheep and cattle farm and my mum was actually my teacher So, yeah, I guess as an early mentor, my mum was certainly that. Was she a good mentor, Annabelle? (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, detention for me meant no dinner. So, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You definitely fed me, I promise. (laughs) We don't need to get docs on this. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I I think she instilled in me the value of education from a very young age. And, and, you know, I did. I learnt a lot from being educated in really small school environments I had 26 students in my in my primary school and then I went on to a really small high school as well with just 200 girls. And so I think, you know, those sort of experiences really cultivated in me opportunity to be able to step in, into leadership positions but also um, a community service ethos and I definitely, you know, developed a lot of values of, of giving back and using what you have to make a difference in your life. Yeah, you must have because... We're now going to kind of get into a little bit of your story and what I'm going to ask you to do, because for me to ask some more questions about kind of some of your hard yards in leadership, I think it's really important that the listeners kind of get a bit of a sense of, you know, why you're on this podcast and what is your story. So take us through it, Annabelle, because you've done some extraordinary things in your time since leaving school. And I guess there must have been some initial spark that, that kind of like made all of this happen please do share. Yeah, of course. I'd love to. I, as I mentioned, grew up in small communities, uh, went to really small schools that valued community service. And uh, when I found myself finishing up at high school, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, I think when you're 17, 18 years old, nobody really does have any idea what they want to do. But I managed to get the marks to do an arts law degree at Sydney Uni, which felt like a really good foundational degree. So I went off to Sydney Uni, hit the big smoke for the first time in my life and started studying arts law. And I think, you know, an incredible sandstone degree and I was so privileged to have this opportunity to study. But it was also equally quite a big shock for me to go from being quite a big fish in a small pond to feeling quite alone and I guess like a number on a piece of paper. And really what I'd valued was community and I'd really valued, I guess, making a difference and, and I wanted to do that in my career. So I thought to myself that I wanted to work with the United Nations. So when I was halfway through my law degree, I decided to put it on hold. I took six months off. I spent the first uh, three months fundraising and then I signed up to volunteer to teach English to children in Kenya. This was in 2007 and I was so excited because I was going to be able to use my skills to make a difference. And it was this incredible moment for me of going overseas on my own for the first time, but equally having this opportunity, I think, to sort of realise and and work out whether or not this was the path that I wanted to pursue. Now, six weeks into my trip, Kenya erupted into civil war. 
I was uh, in the middle of kind of election violence. Kenya became incredibly unsafe. And we were evacuated across the border in um, an armed, you know, convoy of cars, very dramatic, overnight. Um, and before we knew it, our opportunities had just completely changed. So we found ourselves in this little tiny country called Uganda. Uganda is the same size as Australia's state of Victoria. It has a population of 43 million people and 50% of those people are aged under 14 and only 56% of children in Uganda complete primary school. So I wasn't expecting to be there. It's startling statistics. I wasn't expecting to be there. I knew nothing about it. I was 20 at the time. So I just sort of rolled my sleeves up and tried to figure out what to do. And I started volunteering in schools and I just had the most incredible experiences of teaching English to children on the floor of a mud hut who would walk between five and 10 kilometres every day on an empty stomach to get to this school where there were no books, they didn't have pens, pencils, most of them were starving, many of them had really bad health conditions, but they did so with this grit and determination and these incredible smiles on their faces and I just thought, my gosh, the lotto of life can be so unfair, you know, where you're born can have such a huge impact on your life and I guess it was really there and then those experiences sort of led me to start thinking, well, what can I do to make a difference? And, you know, can one person really make a difference? I believe everybody has the power to make a difference. And so that's when School for Life was born. What an amazing story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, that was kind of just the beginning, obviously. You know, fast forward 15 years, we um, are running three schools, two primary, one high school that are educating close to 2,500 vulnerable children. Uh, they provide access to quality education, healthcare, nutrition, skills training programs, vocational training for adults. What we're really seeking to do is to eradicate poverty through education. And uh, we've now been working in the two communities in which we work for just over 10 years. And we're about to see our first students graduate. So it's been a wild ride, as you can imagine, working across cultures, building teams, starting something from scratch having a lot of naysayers and critics tell me that I wouldn't be able to do something. So there's been a lot of kind of different points in the journey that I've had to overcome some pretty difficult times. So when I kind of reference the the title of our, our podcast as Hard Yards in Leadership, I think you've probably had a few. So let me dive in if I can, because in those early days between kind of having a concept, you said this is when School for Life was kind of like was born effectively mm-hmm. and first of all I, I just I just need to say this so many people have moments in their life when they go oh, I really want to do something and the simple fact is the vast majority of people don't end up really actually doing it and and I just want to kind of say like massive kudos for you because you know when you talk about the ability to make a difference I mean, you had nothing that made you special at that moment. I mean, year, year four class captain was helpful but probably wouldn't have been seen as the <laughs> the must-have criteria and you've gone on to do something extraordinary. So I kind of just really want to call that out, Annabelle, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to have done that. I appreciate that one. Thank you. Now take us into some of your story because I guess – I've travelled in Africa a little bit, so I can relate a little bit to some of the places that, that you've been and some of, some of the things that you probably have faced. But my guess is between having the idea of creating a school and actually creating a school, not everything probably went really smooth. Tell us about some of the greatest challenges that you had to face and how you overcame those. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, as a 21-year-old, so I co-founded School for Life with my co-founder, David, and we put our minds together. We shared, you know, an equal passion to make a difference. And our strong belief was in both capacity development for local people, empowering local people to help themselves, but also in this idea that education is truly a gift that you can't take away. So we united forces. And look, at the age of 21 with half a degree, a whole heap of passion and a whole heap of naivety, you get a lot of no's. So our first challenge really was how do you actually position something to actually get people on board, you know, because how do you turn something that's just an idea on a piece of paper into something that's actually a fully-fledged organisation that has funding and that is able to actually deliver on impact? So it was trying to create compelling stories. I feel like as a leader, your ability to sell a vision is incredibly important. And from the very beginning, I recognised if I can't sell this well, how am I going to get a team around me? How am I going to get people aligned to the purpose of the organisation? And ultimately, how am I going to get people to generously donate towards the work that we do to be able to actually do it? So it was just overcoming, I guess, the naysayers and the critics, but also really getting crystal clear on purpose being able to, to define and communicate vision. And I think as a leader, obviously, that's, that's absolutely so important because you can't have a team follow you if they don't know where they're going. So crystallising that enabled us to then get a board of directors involved to get volunteers at the time. So we had a huge volunteer army. And ultimately, to start to raise the funds that we needed that would then get us over the line. Of course, our confidence was knocked many times. I'd roll into, you know, really high-level C-suite offices in probably a suit that I'd borrowed from my mum and ask them, you know, these incredibly powerful people to either kind of give me their advice, their time or their money. And so many of them would say no and I'd just be like, oh, you know, it hits your confidence. But I knew that, you know, it's a numbers game. You've got to keep on getting up. You've got to build that resilience. You've got to recognise that rejection you know, it's going to happen. And so how do you keep on getting up every day and trying to sell something that seems like the impossible? So I think that was probably the first hurdle to overcome. And then once the funds are raised, I guess the cross-cultural collaboration was a really interesting one as a leader. You know, working in extremely vulnerable communities where people have extremely different ways of doing things and different beliefs and different views and needing to bring people together to collaborate effectively, particularly with barriers like, you know, speaking different languages, coming from extremely different backgrounds, and that cultural nuance of just growing up in completely different places and having different coloured skin and trying to get everybody to sort of, I guess, walk in the same direction, but also not disempower the team because from the very beginning for me it was critical that the local people were the ones that ideated and owned the schools that we were running. It wasn't about Dave and I, it was about them and how were they going to create something that they fully believed in. So it was hard. You know, there are a lot of Ugandans that said, you know, we had somebody come 10 years ago and tell us that they were going to build a school and they never came back again. You know, who are you two young kids to tell us what to do? You know, so lots of, I guess, learning, lots of listening, lots of slowing down. At 21, you're not very slow and probably the listening muscle isn't very well developed. So just really having to kind of 
you know, remember that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And if we're to get people aligned, they need to have buying. Mm. I want to dive and just pull a couple of pieces out and unpack them. You talked about resilience and it's funny just as, as you use the word, I was kind of thinking to myself, my God, you had extraordinary resilience because you were knocking on the doors of, you know, C-suite leaders and, and, and so on and you were asking for a lot, but you were effectively Johnny Nobody, right? I mean, you know, like as a, as a 21-year-old with no background in Africa, half a degree, nothing else and an idea, how did you keep dusting yourself off and, and, and going back in again? Because it sounds kind of like it's, it's a throwaway line to say, you know, you've got to be resilient, but it's incredibly hard to be resilient when you are literally getting knocked down and you know why you're getting knocked down, right? Yeah. I think, um, to be really honest with you, that's where clarity of vision comes into play. The conviction with which we were able to sell our story was so strong because we truly deeply believe that even if we could help just a few children with education, that would make a difference. And to be able to sell a vision with passion is so overwhelming for people, you know. People want to be involved. And I think whilst we had no credentials, no experience, you know, we were two pretty much kids with a big idea and some 3D drawings that we'd managed to convince an architect to draw for us, we were able to kind of bowl people over with the stories that we tell, with the passion that we had. And I think the other thing is as well as just keeping purpose front of mind at all times. You know, we were so driven by this one purpose, which at the time was we're going to build one school. You know, if we can help a few kids, we've made a difference. So it was really, I think, it was just about putting one foot in front of the other continually and just showing up, you know, in a very steady way, you know, if I can just keep moving even a centimetre forward, I'm moving, you know, so just mm. keep on, you know, no matter what it takes, just, just move a little bit forward every day. And, and think to yourself every morning, what are the three things I could do that would bring me closer to my vision today? And just focus on those, you know, really be quite clear. Mm. And do you remember, and I'm guessing you do, do you remember the first time someone kind of, gave you an actual robust yes. And when I say robust, there was something actually behind it. She's still involved. I went to lunch with this lady who had purple hair in Darling Harbour and uh, she'd invited me to lunch. She'd heard about me. And at the end of that lunch, she gave me a cheque for $10,000. And I was literally, you know, shaking and crying and just so blown away that somebody had believed in me. And, you know, to this day, she's still a supporter of School for Life and very much, you know, a, a very close friend of mine. And I think the thing is, is that when you feel that feeling of one person believing, you then kind of get addicted to it and want more people to believe. And, and it gives you a little confidence boost. Actually, I'm not crazy. Somebody actually, you know, thinks that I can do this. And so certainly that moment will sit with me forever. Yeah, such a special moment and obviously such a special person because, her making that gesture at that time effectively gave you your path forward. And um, to the extent that that's giving you a path, I mean, that's created a path for hundreds, if not thousands of kids to have a different life. So that person was a pretty special person too. I'm guessing as you worked through that phase, there was probably a lot of other bumps and so on in the road. But then I, I want to kind of, I want to explore 
the next phase, which is once you've started to get some funds and then you're working with, with folks in Uganda, you've got some naysayers and whatever else. But, I mean, just between culture and your age and, and everything else, what were some of the greatest challenges that you had to work through on the Africa side? Yeah, a really good question. I think, you know, I mean, there's just so many as a female particularly at the time, females really didn't have a position in business. So there were times where I would sit on the Minister for Education's doorstep for weeks on end and he would refuse to see me because I was a female. And, you know, you kind of just always had to bail into that into his office in order to be seen. And the rhetoric is, you know, a woman's place is in the home. And so I guess for me that was that was a challenge. But then also, you know, just engaging with the community was hard. Like you know, we had long, long community sessions where we would sit um, and, again, we had a translator, so we weren't speaking the same language at the time, and we were ideating around what the model was going to be and, you know, it would take hours. Like you'd have eight to ten hours sessions and you would only achieve one thing at the end of that session. And when you're so used to working at pace, that can be really, really frustrating to be sort of slowed down and some of the beliefs were just, you know, to us, unbelievable, you know, huge, deep beliefs in witchcraft, for example, some of the myths about what we were going to do when we came into the communities that we needed to kind of myth bust were so important. And then when we actually started to build, everything was done manually. So we didn't have, you know, excavators and what have you. We were using a local team of construction workers to physically dig the foundations of the schools, make the bricks and build the schools. But also they would strike on us. You know, they would go, we want to be paid every day. And if we paid them daily, they would go to the pub that night and not come back the next day. We were trying to pay them at the time weekly. We have now moved to a monthly pay cycle. But the stop and start of trying to get this thing actually off the ground was just so frustrating. You know, you've got this big vision, you've got this big ambition, but then you've got to actually kind of get the rubber to hit the road and make it into a reality. And so I think that was probably the the really hard stuff was seeking to understand before we laid any judgment too and having really open minds about, well, actually this is a product of a lack of education over generations that we're trying to break. So we have to be slow. We have to be, you know, empathetic. We need to listen. Uh, We need to really recognise and meet the community where it's at in order for this to be successful and sustainable over the long term. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership, where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognizes that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. What you're just describing now shows extraordinary maturity. Did that just come to you or did you have mentors and others who were kind of helping you along the way? Because you were dealing with, I mean, like you say, some of those things are so deep-rooted, aren't they? 
Yeah, but we made a lot of mistakes. I mean, we did some silly things along the way, like we went and kicked some rocks over that were, you know, witchcraft, you know, magic, and we, you know, we made some really dumb mistakes. There were all sorts of different cultural nuances we didn't really understand. So again, you know, a lot of this wisdom grew over the years in the time that we were working with the community and also, you know, recognising as well that you need good people around you. Once we started to really build a team of good people around us, then you know, we really started to create a ripple effect and our impact started to grow. So I think after those initial kind of, you know, sort of speed humps, once there were two classrooms and 80 children and five teachers employed, the local community was like, oh, actually, they're for real, you know, and the mindset starts to shift and things start to change and you're overcoming the myths and the rumours and you know, you're starting to kind of prove yourself. And the same with the funding, you know, once two classrooms were up and running, it wasn't so hard anymore to kind of prove to people that you were actually going to be able to deliver on this big promise that you've made. Mm. There are two aspects of this phase that you're discussing that I wanted to kind of like explore because I'm guessing you probably had some hard yards in both. One of them is is bureaucracy. And I know I know how much local culture and bureaucracy get you know, caught up with each other. And I'd imagine you must have had some extraordinarily frustrating times and had to think of ways around that. So I'm keen to explore that. And the other thing I wanted to just explore, Annabelle, was also like once you physically had a building, like were the parents essentially kind of like eager to send their kids or was that another thing that you had to kind of get the flywheel turning? Yeah, great question to both things. You have to work within the bureaucracy of the system over there or it's just not going to work. You know, layers of corruption, extremely frustratingly slow processes. In the first village that we sought to build the school, we got to the local chairman number five, which is kind of like the equivalent of perhaps your premier level of the district and he said to me I'm not going to sign your paperwork without a Christmas present and I was like well we're not giving you a Christmas present because we're bringing you a multi-million dollar facility and he said well I'm not signing the paperwork and I said well I'm not giving you a Christmas present so we walked away so you kind of got it through you know from LC1 through to LC5 so five different people when the fifth person says no they're not going to help you without facilitation and so therefore you go well actually, we're not going to play a part in this because it's a slippery slope and we want to do things right because it's important. You know, we've got donors, money, we've got a high level of integrity, but equally, you know, we don't want to create something that's, you know, flying under the radar and, you know, set up on a, on a basis of fraud and corruption. So then we found ourselves in a new village and, you know, we had to go through the whole process again. So, you know, and, and things like, for example, getting a non-profit organisation registered over in Uganda, very slow process and working through lots of layers of bureaucracy. But patience is so important. And again, I guess it's that purpose, you know, we were just so driven by wanting to achieve what we'd set out to achieve. And so nothing was really going to get in our way. Mm. Just to the parents, yes and no to the question in regards to their engagement and desire to be involved. I think the women were easier to mobilise than the men. There were a lot and continued to be a lot of issues around both alcohol and physical and sexual abuse in our communities. And that leads to kind of this cascading growth of different social problems. And so one of the challenges that we faced was how do we actually mobilise the male parents to get involved in their child's education? 
So we started doing things like Father of the Term Award and we would get them to come into to the assembly and the most engaged father would get recognised for that and, you know, we'd start to do a whole bunch of different activities. But the other part of it that was, I think, a real sale point for us with our schools was we're not just providing literacy and numeracy, we're providing the children with three nutritious meals a day, access to healthcare, clean drinking water, we're providing them with uniforms, books, everything that they need to succeed. So essentially we're supporting them and their whole personality and their whole journey. We've got a whole social work team, for example, to work with the kids around issues they might be facing at home or with their mental health. So we're really tackling the problem from sort of every viewpoint because we believe that if a child isn't healthy both mentally and physically, they're never going to be able to learn well. Um, So the parents really saw that as a benefit too. I remember surveying them and what's the best thing about these schools and they said the food and I was so upset. I remember being like, what? Like the food, you know, like look at everything, you know, we had these beautiful classrooms, happy, you know, environment, safe, you know, beautiful playgrounds, all the books in the world and the parents said the food. But the reality of it is is that they couldn't feed their children three meals a day. They can't afford to. So, of course, that's the most important thing to them, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was the life and death part ultimately, Absolutely. isn't it, in that situation? And if you've got eight mouths to feed, then you can really only afford to feed them one meal, you know, and that was the other part of it. There were all of these things that, you know, you have this idea on a piece of paper that you think it's going to be and then there's reality. And the reality is, you know, you think it's going to be a straight line to success. It's bumpy. It's up and down. It's wild. But also you think that your schools are going to be one thing. But actually what you realise is, well, the children can't learn if they're being beaten up at home. They can't learn if they're starving. For many of them, when we went to enrol them, they didn't have birth certificates because they're born on the floor of a mud hut and they don't know how old they are. So we're looking at their teeth to see if they've still got baby teeth in to try to figure out what age they are. And then when we started to feed them, they shot up. You know, they grew so fast and we realised actually most of these students are actually seven or eight years old, but they've been stunted due to malnutrition. So, again, you know, I mean, I think planning is extremely important, but you can't plan for everything. And, you know, you've also got to just have a go. You know, you've got to just put that first foot in and, you know, start walking and, and you do. You learn so much on the job. Yeah, yeah the number of different things that you've had to learn on the run in extraordinary circumstances, so many things to explore. But for now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, Annabelle. So you talked about the first school and then kind of like where you're at now. Kind of along the way, I'm sure you recognised at different times that you were going kind of from being the kind of like the, the trailblazer kind of like making all of these things happen to suddenly you've got all of these people around you and and they're looking to you for leadership, right? And it doesn't mean you're not still trailblazing, but you also literally have to be doing or taking that that role of being a leader. And that's probably to staff and community and kids and all sorts of things. Share with us, if you can, some of the things that you found hardest in being that leader mm. as compared to necessarily the trailblazer? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I think when you've been used to doing everything yourself and then you hire a bunch of people to do for you, it's a really different frame of mind and it's something I'm still getting used to. It's learning to become a great coach and to be able to empower your people 
to make informed and educated decisions without kind of telling them what to do. And that's been a steep learning curve for me and one that hasn't been easy. The pace with which I like to move is often fast, which means that it's easier for me to kind of, I guess, dictate and direct. But I think one of the things about the scale with which this business has grown, which is now 150 staff across four different countries, you know, you can't do everything yourself anymore. But equally, you have these moments where you think, gosh, like what's, you know, I refer to, you know, what's my Lego tower? Like you build a Lego tower and then you have to hand your Lego tower over to the next person and then you've got to look forward and build your own new Lego tower again. And you've got to get really excited about constantly building a new Lego tower for yourself. But it's also really uncomfortable because you're like, do I, you know, there's the imposter syndrome that starts to come to the surface where it's like, am I enough? You know, am I good enough? Like I'm now 37. You know, I don't have, I've finished the law degree, but I don't have any, you know, I've been a CEO of this business since I was 21 years old. I never really learned from anybody else. So I don't have anyone that I could emulate. I didn't work through the ranks of a company. So the little devil, you know, on your shoulder is saying to you, you know, who are you to be leading a business of 150 people globally? You know, who are you to be creating the next strategy? you know, how do you know this isn't going to fail and what if it fails? And, you know, so you've got to kind of start to measure that and and recognise, you know, the, the power of, of influence and recognise the power of being able to build an engaged, motivated and aligned team uh, to really be able to deliver on the vision. Yeah. You talked about imposter syndrome. Let's tap into that a little bit because I know, we get a lot of feedback from listeners to the show who really relate to the imposter syndrome piece. And of course, there's the simplistic pieces of advice and everyone's already read those. What we do hear though is that often people get a lot of comfort from hearing specific stories from people who've struggled with that and kind of found their way through. But I wonder, Annabelle, can you share like are there any particular moments that you can think of, like specific instances where you kind of had to stare down that imposter syndrome thing that was like, I have to stare this down and get past this, otherwise it's going to kind of, it's going to defeat me? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the growing pains that I faced was potentially bringing people into the organisation who are highly skilled but not necessarily culturally aligned and perhaps not values aligned whilst they came with the most incredible CVs and incredible skills, they're actually quite toxic when they got into the business. And that was both upwards and downwards, you know, sort of at a board level, but also kind of reporting into me at times throughout the journey. And I think, you know, the old saying goes, culture eats strategy for breakfast. But I really, truly believe it and never did I find myself in deeper imposter syndrome moments than when I was surrounded by the wrong people and when I had to make the hard calls and really back myself and go, actually, this person might be really technically capable, but they're not actually aptitude aligned. They don't have a growth mindset. They don't care particularly for what we do. And they're just not the right energy that we need in our team. You know, I believe that if you've got the right aptitude and mindset, you can be anything. You're so trainable if you're aligned. And I think those have been deep moments for me where I've questioned myself and my own capability and gone, like, are you good enough to be the CEO? You don't have, you know, 
all of these years of experience and pedigrees and blah and all of this. But actually, you know, those were the tests for me of when I really had to lean into what's the fabric of the business that I'm trying to create and what is the environment that I'm trying to create for my team to work and operate in and what's acceptable and what isn't and have scary, horrible, uncomfortable conversations, restructure the business, you know, to change the way that things were and make sure that we have the right people. But, you know, when you lean into that discomfort, And, you know, no matter how strong that voice is in your head telling you that you're not good enough or, you know, perhaps this person's, you know, you're the one with the problem and all these, you know, you know, all of that. I I think at the end of the day, if you can get over that imposter syndrome and, and I guess the projection from misaligned people, then you can break through on what's important to you and the business. And you can really, I think, you know, do that. And I, I think the other part of it is, just having those really tough conversations up front. You know, there's been some really hard times where I haven't had the conversations I've needed to have and then things have built up. And, you know, I think clear is kind, giving feedback is important, but there's been so many times where I've thought to myself, oh, is that really fair? Or who am I to be saying to somebody that they, you know, not doing a good job with this or that or actually Mm -hmm. call it when you see it. Because you do know, you do know, it's your business, it's your organisation that you're leading. You do know what's right and wrong. You do know what's the best way to do, you know, to, to behave and all of those things. So particularly around culture and, and values, behaviours, I think it's really important to call it when you see it, if, it, if particularly if it's out of place. Yeah, that's super helpful. And, and we often kind of get into this topic of kind of, you know, what do you do when you have people who are not culturally aligned and... And that's really hard when they're senior people, like you say, who have fantastic CVs and whatever else. But I guess what, what you're sharing is they're older than you and they kind of go, that I know my stuff and, and you don't and, you know, who are you to be telling me and all of those sorts of things. But ultimately, when you kind of, you know, stare at those those letters that you choose to put after your name, which is, you know, CEO or fa- founder or, you know, whatever the thing might be that essentially says the buck really does stop here, you know, I guess you're, what you're really reminding us is that as as leader, you truly are custodian of the culture of your organisation. And if you don't own that culture, if you don't make those hard decisions around that culture, you finish up with an organisation with a culture that doesn't work and then you finish up with an organisation that doesn't work, right? Exactly. And leaning into the discomfort and the fear and perhaps the imposter syndrome that's telling you that, you know, it's a bit of a scary thing to do to stand up to somebody who perhaps is older than you or a different gender or, you know, all of these things. But preserving the culture of the business is absolutely critical and very much a leader's job. Mm. So, Annabelle, as we we kind of move on through kind of your journey, something that I like to ask folks now rather than kind of necessarily some of the earlier stories when you think about the things today, you know, you've got all of your leadership experience behind you now. You, you know, you have a substantial organization that you lead. My guess is there's still some stuff that you find hard. And when we kind of get into why we do this podcast, it's really to help other leaders and particularly younger leaders realize that, you know, the stuff that they find hard is often the stuff that we also find hard, even though we've been doing a little longer. Mm. What are some of the things that you still find really hard wearing that leadership badge? Ooh, there's a lot. I mean, yeah, I, it's not an easy job. 
I think sometimes people say that they feel like they're constantly fighting fires. One of my coaches reframed to me, think of leadership as you're a gardener and you're constantly tending to your garden. You know, you might be weeding it, you might be fertilizing, you might be watering it. You know, you're looking for what the garden needs at the time. And I think it's really important to sort of frame things up positively to stop always feeling like perhaps, you know, I spend 99% of my time fighting fires. I think that's how we all feel when we get to these levels because we're either kind of, you know, we're usually dealing with the really hard stuff and whether that's, you know, hard conversations, whether that's hard decisions, whether that's kind of trying to to sort something out. It's all tricky stuff and it never gets any easier. There's always an element of discomfort associated with it. The other thing I found really difficult and something that I think is worthy of noting is twofold with becoming a mother was one, the recognition of the need for boundaries. I was almost boundaryless with work. I would work 70, 80 hours more, 100 hours a week. You know, I was never stopping. You know, I would be up at five and I would send the team 30 emails before they even kind of got up in the morning. And, you know, there was very blurred lines for me around life and work. You know, like my work is my life by nature of how passionate I am about it. And I truly believe it's a life's purpose. But I also believe that when you're boundaryless, things become very unclear for you. You do need actually space away from the work that you do in order to gain clarity and to reflect. So I think, you know, I hadn't really spent enough time out of the noise of the implementation and the doing to actually do the reflecting and the planning. And so that was really critical. And I think the other part of it was recognizing just how deeply intertwined my identity was with being a CEO. When I went on maternity leave and I'd been working, you know, 100 hours a week as a CEO and founder, and all of a sudden I found myself, you know, breastfeeding 12 times a day and kind of with nothing to sort of, you know, I guess motivate me or, you know, you start to go, who am I? Like I felt like I was school for life. My identity had become so deeply entwined with this thing that I'd started, which was essentially almost like a first child. So I had to kind of step back and go, okay, who am I without school for life? You know, and I need to create a business that succeeds me. So I need to create better boundaries between myself, my own identity, my own time. And now I think I can interact with school for life a lot more healthily. And I think it would be better for the team. They would see a much better version of me, a much less stressed and less fearful version of me when I show up every day. And so I think a few of those things have been really tough, sort of, you know, particularly when I had Charlotte, um, it was a really tough moment for me. So much changed at the same time and I felt really out of control. I'd been so used to being in control for so long and all of a sudden, you know, I had this little person that relied on me and, you know, School for Life's always relied on me, but it's different when you have a little person rely on you and you start to have a mirror held up to your face that some of the behaviours that you've been been doing for the last 10 years have been really actually quite unhealthy. Yeah. What a fantastic um, reflection and I'm sure so many people will get 
a lot out of that. As we move toward the, the back end of, of Hard Yards in Leadership, we, we have a pretty routine question that, that uh, we always have a, have a little bit of fun with. So, so let, let's see how we go. So it kind of goes like this. So imagine you're sitting at the desk or standing at your desk, the place where you normally work, and there's probably a wall or something that you can, can look up and, and see. And in this little game, I give you a, a virtual tin of paint and a paintbrush, and you get to write some words up there or paint some words up there that you're going to see every day for a long time, what words do you write? I think I would write, I love this quote, it's um, anything is possible, everything isn't. And again, that sort of speaks to that laser sharp focus and recognising that, you know, the power of focus is so important to be really good at a few things, to be really targeted and strategic about where you focus your time and your energy is critical to success. I had spent a lot of time in my early years trying to be everything to everybody, try to run different, you know, so many different fundraising initiatives. And I think once I spent some time simplifying where do we play best and then recognising how to play best in that space and going really hard at it, the whole world just became a little bit less noisy and cluttered. And I think that's a really sage piece of advice for all leaders is, You can focus on anything, but you can't focus on everything. And if you can really clarify your focus, I think that's when you have the most success. I love it. When you said the first half of that, I have to say that I had this like this really weird feeling because the thing that hangs on my wall behind me every day says anything is possible and and it makes me want to run out now and find another a, a way of going but everything isn't <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i was just dream big you know, because I, you know i think that leaders need to dream big they need to to put out visions to the world that you know are almost feel impossible because that's our job is to kind of you know to really give people inspiration to dream big and to to push hard and try to do things that are really really hard but yeah I think for me uh, the power of focus is just critical yeah nice and and you're a living testimony to the fact that from the age of 21 you believe that anything is possible because otherwise you would never have gone down the path that you did and you've learned the focus that 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 goes with that. My guess is there's going to be a whole lot of listeners who are feeling really inspired right now, but probably there's, there's hopefully there's a bunch of those who would like to sort of say, how can I help? This is an amazing cause. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how people can kind of um, reach out and find find how to contribute to the, the School for Life journey? For sure. Our website is schoolforlife.org.au and you can find me on LinkedIn or alternatively drop me an email at annabelle at schoolforlife.org.au. Awesome. Hopefully there's going to be a bunch of people who will learn some stuff from today. There's, hopefully there's a bunch of people who will want to contribute to School for Life and, and, and want an extraordinary cause. And as you said earlier on, School for Life isn't just doing a little bit here or there, but for every kid that goes through that, you know, when you see the, the sort of conditions that kids come from and the generations of not having education, you realise the extraordinarily life-changing and the phrase life-changing is so often overused. Mm. You know, there aren't very many things that actually are life-changing. What you're doing is life-changing for thousands of kids and that's um, it's an extraordinary honour for me to have you on on the show and to hear about your story and and to be able to allow you to share your story with many people out there. And I wish you every success going forward, Annabelle. It's just been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. It's been fantastic. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader. Oh,